One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. California voters will soon decide whether to recall the judge who sentenced Brock Turner. And conspiracy theories seem to be taking over our public discussions. We're talking about institutional trust and accountability, as well as discussing the brutal physical realities of gun violence in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome, everyone. We are excited to share a lot of listener feedback, which sometimes the news doesn't allow us to share. If you want our thoughts on the State of the Union, we were live sort of blogging through the comment section on Patreon and shared a bonus episode. So you can go on to patreon.com and become a supporter of the show. We were pretty tired by the end of it all, but I think I think we had some thoughts. I mean, we had some thoughts about the State of the Union. I don't know what else there is to say, really, because we don't want to analyze it as a speech that's divorced from all the facts and circumstances. So we could do like an hour of picking it apart, but this is a president who is what he is, and a speech doesn't change that. And so I think we did the best that we could under the circumstances. I saw a Twitter, I don't know if it was a moment or just a tweet where people were like, he th- he says it's the biggest State of the Union audience in history. That's not true. And I just thought, no, no, I'm not doing that. I don't nope. want to do that anymore. We're not going to do that. Like, almost I feel like at this point, and this is a this is a realization I've had recently, I think we had to be so focused on the tweets and his behavior because there wasn't enough reality of his governance, of his administration to deal with. But we've got plenty of that now. We sort of know where they've been and have an idea of where they're going. And I would like to stay focused on that and not his buffoonery surrounding reality show, perspective, ratings, obsession, etc. So that's my thoughts on that. 
The one thing that is interesting to me about the State of the Union has nothing to do with the president. I think we should have a discussion about what the State of the Union should be and the theatrics of Congress associated with it, because in a lot of ways, what frustrated many people is that this was a very typical State of the Union in terms of the behavior of members of Congress. I certainly felt frustrated by the enthusiastic, almost, you know, sports arena type oh my gosh, applause. It was. And and the, the USA chanting during a State of the Union address. So what is this supposed to be? I mean, this is supposed to be the president coming to report to Congress on the activities of the executive branch and the, the state of our country generally. Not a party meeting, which is what it's turned into. That's right. And so and, and then a party meeting where afterward everybody criticizes people for applauding or not applauding at particular moments. What a waste of the news cycle. So if I were in charge of the State of the Union, there'd be like a financial report. We would talk about the national deficit. We would talk about the spending priorities for the year. We would talk about foreign policy. And I would ask people not to clap because that's not what this is about, right? It's not a pep rally. Yes, that's what it felt like, a pep rally. But I'm not in charge of the State of the Union. And so why don't we move on? (laughs) (laughs) So we got a really interesting piece of feedback from one of our listeners, Aditi. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She's a follower on Twitter. Long-time Pansy Politics listener who always contributes very thoughtfully to our discussions. So she lives in California, and she wanted to hear our thoughts on the campaign launched against Judge Aaron Persky, who sentenced Brock Turner. So it was a law professor who has led the campaign and got enough signatures to qualify for the recall on the ballot. Over 94,000 people signed the petition. If the voters decide to recall Judge Persky, I hope I'm saying his name right, it will be the first California judge to be recalled since 1932. And it was really interesting. Her perspective was, I hated the sentencing. It sort of made sense to me. And then she read a lot of perspectives that said, like, this is a bad precedent to set, to say that we're going to recall a judge based on one decision. And you have a lot of particularly legal professionals weighing in and saying they don't think this is a good idea. Just as a refresher for everybody, Brock Turner was sentenced in 2016. He could have gotten up to 14 years in prison for raping an unconscious woman on campus. But the probation department in California recommended a shorter sentence, and Persky ultimately imposed that sentence that was recommended by the probation department of six months of imprisonment. And one of the aspects of this campaign that you might not have seen, I had to read a lot of stories from California newspapers to get this level of detail, but the law professor who started the recall campaign and proponents of the recall campaign say, this judge has a history of being light on wealthy white athletes in particular in his courtroom. But the Associated Press did a study showing that this judge has a history of light sentences on first-time offenders across race and class lines, and that he routinely follows the probation department recommendations. And I think this highlights a problem with judicial officials being elected, period. Yeah, that's my beef with it. It's not that I think that we need to use an election to kick him out. I don't think elections should be involved in the judiciary branch at all. And that's all that we do in Kentucky. All of our judges are elected, which really bothers me. Think about that for a second. Our Supreme Court justices in Kentucky are elected. Bananas. When you think about just the universe that is the judiciary, all of the rules, all of the language, so much of it is 
technical and requires a level of expertise and years of experience to navigate if it is to be done thoughtfully and in a way that really provides kind of the guardrail of democracy that the judiciary is supposed to be there to protect. This kind of direct accountability to voters, I think it's really dicey. I mean, on the one hand, I understand being outraged by this sentence. And I understand more than the sentence being outraged by some of the judge's remarks during the sentencing. He did say some things that were very tone deaf, that were very insulting. He commented on the fact that the victim in this case had been intoxicated and then said that he didn't give that a lot of weight, but he still said it. So I get being mad at him. I don't know that we want judges to be accountable directly to voters, though, when so much of their consideration in making decisions like this doesn't make the public arena in a way that allows us to make good decisions. When I was a business law professor at our local community college, I always showed a movie called Hot Coffee, which is about the changing landscape of our United States tort system. It's a really good documentary. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere right now. I'll try to figure that out and put it in the show notes. But They go through the hot coffee McDonald's case, which everybody thinks is a joke. But when you learn the facts of the case, you're like, give the woman all of McDonald's money. Then they talk about medical malpractice insurance and medical malpractice laws. And they also talk about judicial elections and specifically a case in Mississippi, I believe a state Supreme Court justice. It's really fascinating. And they sort of make the argument that judicial elections are a huge problem because the system is supposed to be protected. And for me, the involvement of the judiciary in the, in the electoral system, partisanship is a huge concern, and I think that's a problem. It's also because my other problem is, look, judges aren't politicians. Judges are trained legal professionals, and with love to the voting public, most people are not trained legal professionals. And I think there is complexity to the reality of lawsuits and civil court and criminal court and To expect voters to understand all that complexity and to make a decision, I just think is problematic. You know, politicians are supposed to be responsive to the people, and that's great. But that's not really – and, you know, being responsive to the people that are mainly making emotional decisions, I don't have a huge problem with. I mean, obviously, all of us would love all of the voting public to be better informed. But I don't have it – I don't think that's the problem that it is with the judiciary when you have sort of emotional – reactions to something that's supposed to be a professional exercise. I think that's the the big concern. And I know this is a look, this is a law professor leading the campaign. And clearly there's disagreement among the legal community about whether this is a, this is a good thing or not, but you know, for me, I think that involving electoral politics in the judicial branch is incredibly problematic for many reasons that go beyond partisanship. Well, that's right because the judicial branch is explicitly not supposed to be right. responsive right. to the people. And especially if you are more conservative in your perspective, the judicial branch, this judge probably did exactly what he should have done, right? He followed the law and he followed the recommendation of the probation department, and he has a history of doing that. It feels awful. I think this calls into a question what our interests are in the movement against sexual assault, abuse, and rape. Is vengeance the motivation? I would rather spend this energy on prevention of future crimes. Do you think the problem with Judge Persky was that he was not electorally sensitive? Like, honestly, is that the source of his insensitivity in this sentencing? Of course it isn't. That's not the problem. The problem is that he is a male inside a patriarchal system with a lot of amount of privilege as a judge. Like, that's not good. Kicking him out is not going to fix the problem that caused his insensitivity and tone deaf remarks. 
Like that's again, you're. It's sort of like the conversation we were having about Harvard. Like blaming the petri dish. With the, well, that's the you can get rid of the petri dish, so it's going to grow somewhere else. Like, it's we're going to have the same problem. We're in a different pair of pants because this is the, he is not the problem. He is a manifestation of the problem. And I don't think electoral res- responsiveness is going to fix the problem of patriarchy in the judiciary. Like, more female judges will. I guess you could get rid of him and elect a female judge. I'm not opposed to that. But I don't know. I just think that that is a problematic approach to viewing, like, why he made those comments. And it's kind of the same thing. It's the other side of the coin from the discussion we just had about Judge Aquilina in the Nassar hearing. So she had all this discretion and used it to make her courtroom a forum on harassment and abuse of children and bringing all these issues to light. His courtroom wasn't used that way. They both have that discretion. And we need to protect that discretion around our judges, I think, because if we further politicize our court system, we will not like the results. We don't like the results happening from our very politicized Congress, and it's supposed to be politicized. Mm-hmm. I guarantee that we won't like the results from from further politicizing our courtrooms. This came from Slate, you know, which is not known as like a bastion of conservative thought. And I thought that it was really important. We already know that judicial elections have pernicious effects on the administration of justice. A famous Brennan Center study found that trial judges in Washington and Pennsylvania hand out longer sentences the closer they are to re-election. It also found that state Supreme Court justices rule less frequently in favor of criminal defendants during election cycles that feature more television ads, and that Alabama judges are more likely to override a jury's recommendation of life in prison and impose the death penalty during election years. This data comes as little surprise since a majority of judicial election ads focus on criminal justice. These ads typically tout a candidate's tough-on-crime approach or attack an opponent as soft-on-crime by citing rulings that favored criminal defendants. Elected judges know a single soft-on-crime decision can end their careers, so they tend to become more stringent as a re-election fight looms. And I just don't think this is well. What and we let me want. ask you this: like they always say that about we don't want career politicians. But, like, you do want career judges. Do you, like, there's a lot on the line for them. They have law degrees. They have experience. They can't just hop off the bench. I mean, they most like, a lot of people could hop off the bench and go back to legal practice. But not necessarily. And it's more complicated than that. It's not like you just stop being a representative and go back to being a farmer, like we all envision with career politicians. Like, it's a totally different career and set of experience and skills. And the other thing that kind of bugs me when you were talking about sort of the conservative viewpoint on this is I just feel like you get all this mouthing, for use of a better word, about judicial activism, but I feel like it's the same people that say we don't want judicial activism that push for these elections and that push to kick people off because they want people to be responsive to the people. You can't have it both ways. Either judges are interpreting the law and they're not engaged in judicial activism or you want them responding to your point of view. But you don't get to argue both sides of that coin, which I feel like conservative activists do quite a lot. Well, they're doing it right now. I mean, some of the Trump nominations have been so manifestly unqualified that there's no argument that they're being put on the bench to do anything other than judicial activism. And that is so frustrating to me as a conservative. Now, I will say that there are other nominations that I think have been perfectly appropriate and some some excellent candidates for the judiciary, and those should sail through Congress. But Congress is approving, providing their consent to a lot of 
of unqualified judges under President Trump. And so, yeah, conservatives have lost, I think, the moral high ground to the extent they ever had it on talking about judicial activism. I do think this recall effort could move us even more in the direction of of changing the judiciary to be more like the legislative branch in a way that it's And the way that they keep trotting out how many judges they've confirmed, as if that is a political win. He talked about the State of the Union. Mike Pence brought it up in his interview with Politico. Like, why are you talking about it like that? If you think the judiciary is so important as an independent branch, no, you're trotting that that should just be an administrative task. But you're trotting it out like a political win over and over and over again. Well, I think the argument is, look, we stalled all these people under President Obama and held them so that we could get conservative justices appointed. But but by the way, we're not for judicial activism. I mean, it's really empty and gross. And I don't like it. (laughs) And I also don't like I mean, I just want to be clear. I don't like that Brock Turner only spent three months in jail. I think that's a miscarriage of justice. I will always tolerate a miscarriage of justice in the direction of leniency, though, because that's what our system is premised on. I would rather someone like Brock Turner spend less time in jail. And we all talk about that. And we have a public dialogue that pushes toward prevention of anything like this ever happening again than for someone to be mistakenly imprisoned for an excessive amount of time. And while we're having a really good open conversation in this country about prison reform and criminal justice, let's not start recalling judges who we think didn't exercise enough Mm -hmm. wrath. Mm -hmm. Speaking of wrath, (laughs) we had another listener email us about a current conspiracy theory making its way through her Facebook feed and a few family members about the storm conspiracy. Beth, did you did you read a little bit about the storm conspiracy? I read as much as I could stand to read about the storm conspiracy. I felt like I had hopped into a different universe. Conspiracy theories wear me out. So there's a really great article from Psychology Today that I will put in the show notes that explains why people believe in conspiracy theories, which is, I think, what you just have to remind yourself when one of these bananas things blows up which is basically when there are actions happening in the world that people just fundamentally can't understand, they create conspiracy theories to help understand them. Now, for me, it just makes the world more confusing. But for some people, thinking the Illuminati is in charge is easier to believe and more comforting emotionally. This one is, I mean, the Illuminati would be a stroke of realism in this conspiracy theory. I mean, it's got everything, y'all. Obama, Hillary, all are sex child trafficking. There is lots of medical emergencies that seem to, that we're supposed to interpret certain ways. I couldn't even keep it all together. I think that the overarching theory here is don't worry about anything that you hear that sounds negative about President Trump because he intends for you to hear that to distract the bad guys. And eventually we're going to have the political equivalent of the Book of Revelation in which President Trump is vindicated completely and every person who Sean Hannity has ever criticized will go to jail. I think that's pretty much it. And it all came on, it all originated on 4chan. Surprise, surprise. There's like an anonymous source. We can only trust him though. And information coming from anyone but this anonymous source, no good. No good. You can't trust it. It's just got every psychological button in it. It's kind of, it's kind of a, bananas i mean were these were there this kind of 
Were there these kinds of conspiracy theories about W? I don't remember this. Maybe 4chan and the internet wasn't sort of to the level it is now. That's the thing. I think that there have always been conspiracy theories. I mean, you can go way back in our history and see some very creative thinking around what was happening. What I think the difference is, is that outlets like Twitter enable this to become mainstream quickly. You know, this is no longer just in 4chan. It is on Twitter. It is on YouTube. It is on Reddit. And all of these things are kind of being unearthed because it's easier. There are more channels to come up from the underground and for this to appear on, like, your cousin's Facebook Mm -hmm. feed. And that's what's really alarming about all of it. And I think it's even more alarming when politicians, and I'm looking hard at you, Devin Nunes, use this as fodder to create a more civil-sounding version of conspiracy yeah. theory, more plausible, and use, you know, use, like, the House Intelligence Committee. It's crazy. This whole situation with the memo. Which definitely gets brought up in this original post our listener sent us. The memo is a part of it, for sure. Believe it. That's the thing. Like, they're dropping all of these hints that this is sort of happening. And I, I want to be clear about this. I have very conflicted feelings about the entire FISA process and about the ability of the United States government to surveil its own citizens. Part of the reason that I have voted consistently for Rand Paul is because I think he's been an important voice, albeit one that is more extreme than mine, but I think he's been an important voice on making sure that we are not sacrificing our civil liberties in the name of security. So I think that this is all worthy of consideration and oversight, for sure. I don't think the FBI is immune from criticism or immune from the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee looking into what they are doing and making sure it's done correctly. But when they have done their jobs pursuant to the laws that the House and Senate have written, I think the idea that a very short memo written by some congressional staffers is going to expose a massive conspiracy theory. (laughs) Come on, people. Come on. So where I'm at with the FBI is, like I said, like you said, actually, I don't think it's immune to criticism. I think there is probably some real problems in the FBI that need to be worked on. There are very few institutions that don't benefit from transparency. There are also very few institutions that benefit from partisan fighting like this. It's like with a Brock Turner judge recall. If you think there's a problem, do you really think this is the best process to fix it? Like kicking out every slightly Democratic-leaning person at the FBI and just making sure it's only House Republicans who can investigate things, like that's going to fix it? I'm so confused as to what you think the actual problem is. I do not think the actual problem is text messages between coworkers. And I don't think the actual problem is the FBI trying to influence the outcome of an election. I didn't think it when James Comey went back to Congress and told him he was reviewing Hillary Clinton's emails. And I don't think it now. And I think that it's unbelievable that, that the president particularly has the audacity to say that the FBI was trying to swing the election when just, I don't know, a year or so ago, everyone in the country who voted for Hillary Clinton was saying that the FBI tried to swing the election in his favor. I think the FBI was in a horrible position in this past election. And I think, honestly, and I know that I'm weirdly defensive of James Comey, so I will just admit that. 
when I look back and forward, right, and keep trying to think about what occurred in 2016 and what's occurring today, I even more clearly understand why James Comey felt that he had to supplement Mm. the record. Because he had these ravenous individuals in the House of Representatives claiming to investigate a situation. If he had not disclosed that, imagine the circus that would have followed. And I understand the perspective of people saying, then why didn't he get some cameras and tell them about what was going on with President Trump? Well, perhaps that's because he genuinely believed that there were foreign policy implications to that, right? The more we learn about what the FBI could have been investigating at that time, the more serious it seems, the more devastating it seems to have all of this hitting the headlines in incomplete and sometimes inaccurate chunks of information. Just this is amateur hour in the federal government. And people like Devin Nunes are using all of this dysfunction to try to build their own careers. And it is a dangerous moment, especially when hundreds of thousands of people are reading these posts that are barely coherent from someone named Q, thinking that the president is orchestrating all Um, of it. I would like to politely suggest everyone turn their volume down a little bit because I need to get something off my chest. You know who did interfere in the government? You're so concerned about the FBI. Do you know who did interfere in the election? Russia! That's who interfered in the election. This is what's so fury infuriating to me. I believe the FBI was focused on protecting. Do you know who I think it was trying to protect? The FBI. Just like everybody else focuses on protecting their institution and their job and their boss. That's what they were doing. Not because they were trying to swing the election, because they were trying to think through the political ramifications of their very complicated space inside the federal bureaucracy. And so that's what they were doing. And you would have done the same thing. So... It's so ridiculous that you think that the FBI would put all this on the line because they just think Hillary Clinton has to be president. No, they were protecting themselves just like everybody does. And they need to protect themselves because here's the issue. Our government is nothing but people wrapped in structures. We have to believe in institutions like the FBI. Not believe in them to the point that they are immune from criticism, but believe in them, believe they have an integrity running throughout the system, believe that the things that go wrong mostly get resolved, mostly have good oversight. If we start questioning every aspect of the Justice Department, and this ties in with the Judge Persky conversation too, if we take our entire judicial branch, all law enforcement, to a place where we think every one of these people is just a craven partisan furthering an agenda that blows like the wind, and I'm going to use those stories to justify anything that I don't like that's being said about my party or my president, we're really taking down, we're like, we're dismantling our own system. This is Jenga, and we're removing the pieces that keep it there all There are up. absolutely Americans, a not unsubstantial amount, who believe that Democrats and liberals are a threat to everything this country stands for, and they should not be in any positions of power. They should not be any institution, any, any in any institution, should not be in government. Not really sure they want us to live here. So I definitely think there are people who believe, yep, and, and I'm not even talking about conspiracy theorists, although I think this is the fuel for a lot of that fire, that just believe that people, quote, like loony liberals, which is what I've been being called a lot lately, 
that they are a threat to the country. And so any whiff of Democrats or liberals in any form of government and any bureaucracy is a threat. And the only people who should be in charge and be making um, decisions are conservatives. I absolutely believe that there are people that think that. Well, there are. And there are people, not to both sides it, there are people who tell me every day that every Republican on earth should be kind of eradicated. There's, There's no room in America for that perspective. We can't function this way. And I do blame the Republicans who are running the investigation right now for perpetuating that. They're hurting themselves Clearly. in the process. The more we erode trust, the more we hurt the entire country. And it doesn't matter what your political perspective is. We need a political system for anything to happen here and, and happen well. I mean, when Trey Gowdy is like, I'm out, it's too toxic. What is happening? Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy. I mean, I if, if, the, if you I need know. know anything else from this news cycle, it's that Trey Gowdy was like, this is too toxic of an environment. I want to go home and go back to my law practice. What? All right, cool. So what do we do about all this? I mean, I think that part of the answer for me is I'm not going to get excited about anything related to the Mueller investigation that hasn't been said mm-hmm. under oath. And that isn't in a document with the court where someone is swearing it's true. Because I just don't believe any of this. I think leadership, if there were really a problem with surveillance at the FBI that needed congressional oversight and then that needed to be brought into the public arena because it's that serious, that should be done on a bipartisan basis. If the president really wants this memo released because he believes in sunlight as the best disinfectant, then he should say to the House Intelligence Committee, Democrats and Republicans, y'all get in a room and stay there until you have a bipartisan memo that everybody agrees Mm -hmm. to to publish. That's what we need to do. I I fully support airing out the things that are not working, but not Mm -hmm. this way. Mm -hmm. I also think we've got to turn off anybody who reacts in less than 30 seconds to a tragedy with a conspiracy theory. The fact that Alex Jones yesterday was referring to the truck that drove into the train carrying Republican members to a retreat as a kamikaze truck, that is nonsense. And it has no business getting the kind of numbers that he gets. And we just have to we have to dial this down. News reporting should not read like oh fan Lord. fiction. Isn't that the truth? So moving on from the fantasy fiction of conspiracy theories, we are going to move to the very real physical reality of gun violence with Dr. Sterling Herring. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy.
just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. We're about to share with you a conversation that we had with Dr. Sterling Herring, who is a physician at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also an injury policy researcher at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Herring treated victims of the school shooting that took place at Marshall County High School. And after that, he tweeted that physicians need to be speaking out more about the realities of gun violence. I want to let you know that this conversation is upsetting to listen to. He describes in some fair amount of detail what a bullet can do to a human body, and it's very hard to hear. We're airing it because we think it is important for our public policy to have debates where we all really know what we're talking about. So we're not sharing this to shame anyone, especially if you are a gun owner. This is not to make you feel terrible about that decision. It is just to say if we're going to have a real discussion about school violence and about gun violence. Let's understand what we're talking about. So we hope that you will listen and share your thoughts and continue the conversation. So today we are talking with Dr. Sterling Herring. I encountered a tweet he sent on January 23rd. He said, today I cared for victims of Kentucky school shooting as they arrived via helicopter. They looked like my kids and yours. All I could think about was the thoughts and prayers that would be tweeted from politicians who will do nothing to stop the next one. I've never felt so sick. And then he was in a Newsweek article I found, and I immediately reached out because as our Pantsuit Politics listener, this, the idea that the, the physical reality of gun violence is hidden from all 
hidden from all of us is uh, very close to my heart as a survivor of school violence. And so we reached out. He said he'd come on the show. We're so excited to have him. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for reaching out. So tell us a little bit about your background and what happened when you tweeted that. Sure. So um, I'm a physician. I did uh, my, my medical school in Florida. I then kind of went and did, uh, did a master's degree and some doctoral work. I'm still finishing up a doctorate degree in uh, public health policy with an emphasis on injury prevention. And that goes everything from school shootings to opioid overdoses and traumatic brain injury and that sort of thing. Now I'm coming back and finishing my training here at Vanderbilt. So I'm here in Nashville, uh, you know, finishing my training. And I have to say that, you know, I'm not speaking for Vanderbilt now. I'm not speaking for any of my colleagues, but I can speak Obviously. for myself. Obviously. Right. So just kind of what happened that day is, you know, we all were minding our own business, so to speak. But kind of contextually, I think this was important to me because the, the day before I'd happened to have a day off and I'd spent the day looking at schools for my five-year-old son. And so mm. I'm looking around thinking, you know, what do I want in a school? And my wife is saying, you know, I like this and I like that. And uh, I came into work that day kind of with that on my mind and thinking about the pros and cons of where to send my son to school. And then the first, I walk into this kind of organized chaotic scene. There's just clearly a lot going on. And so I start asking around what's happening. They said there was a school shooting. Uh, several victims had already come in. There were more on the way. So, you know, you go and you prepare and you, you we're a level one trauma center. So um, it's not uncommon to see gunshot victims. And so as we prepared to see them come in, I know I was standing there watching as I typically am in, in these scenarios and this person came in and just looked, this, this patient, this victim came in and just looked so different uh, in that these people were so young, you know, mm-hmm. they, were, they were young. They just looked like a kid that went to school that day. I struggled with that quite a bit. And as I'm sitting there watching, you know, there's a flurry of activity and fantastic nurses and paramedics and physicians and the trauma, tra- the trauma team did an excellent job and the emergency medicine attendings. I, am, I was actually an off-service person that just happened to be there uh, while, this, while this all happened. So as I'm watching this flurry of activity, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks that this is, this is my son, and this is mm-hmm. you know, your son and your neighbor, and, and this is every person, and this is every parent's worst nightmare, that somewhere a parent or several parents dropped off their kids at school said, have a good day, and then went to work and went on thinking about the things they had to do that day. And clearly, all these kids went to school thinking about what they had to do that day, and nobody expected, you know, this fellow student to come in with a handgun and start firing at his peers and shooting Mm -hmm. these people and killing them or wounding them in such a way that, you know, they're not likely to bounce back from that. Mm -hmm. I think that's any parent's worst nightmare. I think it's any kid's worst nightmare these days. I know when I was young, I don't think this was anybody's on anybody's mind until Columbine, um, or at least for me, it wasn't. So, you know, as, as we're standing there and all this is going on, the first thing that hits me is how is all of that I just said, how difficult the situation this must be for everyone involved and how it struck me personally as a, as a father. And then immediately after that, you know, like I said, I have this training in public policy and injury prevention. My thought was, well, what can be done to prevent this? What should have happened? What was the systemic failure that allowed this to happen? And then the, the, just it was clear as day I had this thought, thoughts and prayers. Like, that's what we're going to see is thoughts and prayers. Somebody's going to be tweeting. Somebody's going to be Facebooking. There are going to be statements drafted by PR people. 
and they're all going to say thoughts and prayers. And a week from now, we're going to be talking about the Super Bowl. And it really, really bothered me. I honestly just got physically ill. You know, I'm saying I was looking around for a trash can. It's the first time that's ever happened in my training in medicine where I wow. really thought I was going to be physically ill. And so you tweeted this and it got quite the reaction. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. So, you know, this is the very beginning of my shift and you can't, you can't just, you know, go off and take a break. That's not an option. And certainly in the emergency room, that's not an option. Anytime there's a traumatic event like this where a lot of people are kind of pulled to different part of the floor, uh, that means there's a backup. Other people are still sick and other people are still coming to the emergency room and people are still breaking arms and feeling ill. And so we, you know, as soon as this was over, I kind of rushed out and went about to try to do my thing and kind of had to face the reality of the world is still spinning. But I remember sitting down, kind of, I went and sat down on my computer and was just trying to like feel a little bit better, but obviously this sticks with you. And I just kind of made the decision, you know what, I'll deal with this later. I'll mentally process this later. I have to kind of move on. So that night as my shift ended, I went out to the car and I sat down and I turned on the car and it just kind of struck me hard at that point. I struggled with processing it kind of on that personal level. And I, you know, the tweet, honestly, I had something like, I don't know, 150 followers. I was kind of tweeting in the dark, kind of like the equivalent of, of screaming into your pillow or something. And, uh, but clearly it had a, a little larger reaction than I anticipated. I think it's been retweeted or liked or something, I think 17,000 times or something like this. There's been a lot of reaction on the full, on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, I've talked about this before, and I was struck even by the photo from the Newsweek article about your perspective, which is what I've said is the photos from my school shooting are almost exactly the same of the photos from Marshall County school shooting, which is it's people standing, hugging and crying. And that is not the physical reality of gun violence. The physical reality of when children are shot is not that people stand around and cry. It's that bodies are torn apart. There is blood and lots of it. And people have permanent physical incapacities due to these shootings. Um, one of the victims from my school was left p- paralyzed. And what bothers me is that, but that's what America sees, people crying and hugging. Even the big image from your story, Newsweek, is uh, two women h- crying and hugging. And I've heard trauma doctors before say, if people knew what it looked like for kids to get shot, what it actually looks like, there would be an outcry. And I think what bothered me, particularly in, in when I read your when I read your perspective, I had just sat around with uh, many survivors of my school shooting and I heard some of their stories for the first time. And, you know, we're talking about people who saw their family members shot. We're talking about people who watched their best friends shot in front of them. And I just thought, why should the students and the teachers on the scene and the emergency medical responders carry the burden of these images while the rest of us get to just look at some people crying and go on with the rest of our lives. You know, I can't fathom, I cannot fathom what the emergency medical teams and the responders at Sandy Hook have to deal with after seeing what they saw. And I really respect members of the medical community that come out and say, hey, P.S., this is what is actually happening to the human body. I mean, can you just talk to us a little bit about what you think people don't understand about the realities of what a bullet does to a human body? Yes, and I think you're absolutely correct. I think by the time we see it on the news, it's scrubbed and it's cleansed mm-hmm. and it's fit for human consumption. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's appropriate, probably. I don't want my kids seeing that, but it's also incredibly un- unfortunate. You know, we see, what do we see after this? Like, you nail it on the head. People hugging and crying 
and just gathering together. And you see the same thing at the Oscars, people hugging and crying because they just want an Oscar. Just so you know true. What I mean? and, yep. and this is what we see. And the reality is exactly what you said. I think if people thought for a minute about the reality of a school shooting, about the reality of sitting at your desk talking with your friend and seeing a guy come in or a girl come in that comes in every day and nothing's different except that person then lifts their arm up and they're holding a pistol and they pull the trigger and there's a loud bang that startles everyone and nobody knows what's going on because there was this loud noise. And then you see somebody fall, but it's not like a movie fall and scream and, oh, mm-hmm. I think it's blood and brains splattered on a wall. So many of my friends say that. They're like, I tell people all the time, it's not like it is in the movies. It doesn't look like that. And that's another reason I sort of have, don't have a lot of sympathy for the like, well, we have to, we have to, these are the images that are appropriate. Well, you guys, everybody watches blood and violence every night on their television shows. So it's not like we are all just totally protected from the idea of, of violence and blood. And I understand, obviously, that there's a difference when it's fake and when it's real. But maybe we think that the real stuff, we our vision of the real stuff is closer to the fake stuff. And that's not the reality. Like, I think that's something that I've just recently sort of begun to understood. One of the victims from our shooting was talking and upset and when she was taken to the hospital. But it was that the bullet w- took a path through basically every internal organ in her body. And that's what killed her. And I think people think, like, the bullet just goes through you. But that's not really the case, right? It's not. So you can imagine, I was in in thinking about this call. I was trying to think of an analogy to use. The the body is just packed full. There's not empty, unused space just sitting in there. Mm-hmm. It's packed full of stuff you need. There's you know large blood vessels that some of them are high pressure, and if you pierce them, they're just going to empty a ton of blood. Others are lower pressure, which means you don't necessarily know that they're leaking a lot of blood until they've leaked Mm -hmm. a lot of blood. There's gastric contents that have a really low pH that are just full of acid that are not meant to be spilled into the human body. There is a pancreas that has enzymes that are designed to break down meat and protein, which is what humans are made of. So if you pierce that, you're spilling that over all of your internal organs. There's a heart that is a pump, which means it has, it's very, it's very uh, sensitive to pressure changes. So if you pierce that, the pump stops working and starts, it keeps trying to work, but it's not really going anywhere. And suddenly blood is in places it shouldn't be. The heart sits inside a fibrous sac that doesn't expand very much. So if you spill a lot of blood into that fibrous sac, then it puts a lot of pressure on the heart and makes the heart stop working. Mm-hmm. There's a spine that is just, just bone, which anybody that's broken an arm before knows bone is hard, but not that hard. And the spine surrounds the spinal cord, which is the, you know, nerve, the central nervous system. It's almost, it's an extension of the brain that runs down your back and controls every muscle, every feeling, every blood vessel getting larger or smaller, keeping you, keeping your organs perfused and all of this. There's, and then you have this, you know, your entire abdomen is filled with, with intestines that have contents of various acidity that are full of bacteria, whereas everything around them is not, and it's not designed to be spilled into the into the body. And if Mm -hmm. it is, it can cause reactions that can kill you. So when people die of a gunshot wound, it's not just you get shot and you die. It's you have a piece of metal tearing through in a straight line, or sometimes it hits a bone and turns a path through a place that there's no path. And Mm -hmm. so you're hitting a spleen, which then ruptures and tears, you know, empties a a ton of blood into the abdomen and, and chest. And then, you know, maybe you go through the diaphragm so your lungs aren't 
expanding like they should because now there's a hole in the pump system that keeps you breathing. And then, you know, maybe they nick the bottom of the heart. So now you're tearing more blood and the heart's not perfusing what it needs to before it hits the, you know, large colon on its way out. And then you, you know, suddenly have bacterial content spilling into the body and then it leaves or it doesn't, maybe it stays there. So then you have this foreign body that's sitting there that doesn't need to be sitting there. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you're there. And you know what I mean? And just imagine for the next 20, 30 minutes, an hour, you know, however long it takes before you can get to surgery. And you've got everything I just described continuing. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's painful and it's gross and it's gory and it's Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today. 
with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. One of the things that you said in the Newsweek article that struck me too is that we talk mostly about the children who lose their lives in these shootings. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to ask you in any way to violate confidentiality of patients or to disrespect the families involved. But you mentioned, and I think this is really important, that injuries from gun violence don't um, don't fade like the the other children there are not going to get a Band-Aid and be fine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And again, without going into details, you can just you can imagine that somebody that gets shot with a small caliber weapon in, I don't know, the thigh or something where it's a place and it misses a bone and it misses an artery. And it's one of these things where it kind of sew you up and over time you might heal and you might walk with a limp or something. That's one thing. But, you know, a large caliber rifle or a large caliber handgun is going to do a lot of damage. And some of these bullets are designed to, when they impact, they don't just tear like a 45 caliber handgun is so big. But then when it hits these hollow point bullets and specifically are designed to, when they hit the subject, whether it's a target or a person, they're designed to open up and spread Mm. and send shrapnel in a bunch of different directions. They can cause a lot of damage. You can imagine that something of that caliber and something of that destructive capacity hitting a chest, deflating a lung, damaging a heart, destroying part of the aorta, which carries blood flow to most of your body. You can imagine that that's not something you put a Band-Aid on and then, you know, maybe you're laid up in the hospital for a week or two and you walk out feeling good. Or people that have damage to their head. You know, if you survive a gunshot wound to the head, which depending on where it goes and, and where it lands, when I say the head, I mean the anatomic head. I'm not just talking about the top of your head. I mean anywhere in your face or your neck. You don't just bounce back from being shot in one of these places. You don't, be, you don't bounce back if a bullet hits your you know, jaw or your ear or something. You may not hear again or you may not speak again. You may not be able to eat again, you know, if it damages your vision because your eyes. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll spare some of those details. But there are a lot of things from which you will not bounce back. There are a lot of different options. There are a few options where you may be actually able to bounce back. So what do you think the role is of the medical community in helping the rest of us understand the impact? Because I do think there's a role to be played here. I think short of, I think it is inevitable that someone live tweets an event like this or live Facebook, Facebook lives an event like this. And then I think that there will be a deeper understanding. But short of that, what do you think the role of the medical community is moving forward? I think that's a great question. You know, like I mentioned, a lot of my training, a lot of my background is in injury prevention and injury policy. And we often will get work lucky in that we have some fantastic experts in a lot of fields, including gun violence. I know some of my colleagues, Daniel Webster and Cash Kafasi up at Johns Hopkins have done fantastic work in this, in this field, uh, Steve Terrett. But I think what's missing is the voice from the front lines on the medical community. I think we don't often hear enough about what happened, what's going to happen, you know, six months from now, what the prognosis is, how much of a recovery these people are likely to make, and what could have been done to prevent this. I think that's something, I think medicine in general, I think we're trained to be very sterile. I think we're mm-hmm. trained to be very 
fact-based and not, you know, prognosticate and say, oh, well, you know, I think three years from now, is he going to be able to walk again? Well, we can't be sure, you know, and, mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. When I think in reality, it'd be great to say, well, in all reality, this person will not be able to speak again. This person will not be able to eat ever again. And if they do, it's going to be with a tube down their nose or something like mm-hmm. that. And this person is a teenager or, you know what I mean? And really kind yeah. of go into some of the graphic social details, if not the graphic medical details. I would love it if more physicians kind of stepped forward and said, hey, and I think some do. And I'm not, I'm certainly grateful for the ones that are out there. But I would love it if more of the medical community said, hey, this happened and it shouldn't have. And here are some options that could have prevented this or prevented the next one anyway. And I feel like there are options on the table. One of the things I love about your podcast is you see both sides of an issue. And I think some of the pushback I've gotten, or I should say reactions I've gotten from my tweet, some people are saying, yeah, we should ban all weapons. We should, the government should go around and confiscate everybody's weapons. Well, that's constitutionally protected right. You can't just do that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Other people are saying, yeah, we should arm everybody. If more people had guns, you know, if every kid in that class had a gun, then the first bullet that went off, you know, the guy would have gotten shot or whoever the person was would have gotten shot and, you know, problem solved. But to me, that's like saying we're going to use fewer sutures if we give everybody knives. And that is Mm. just not going to happen. You're going to get more people will be cut if everyone has a knife. So I think in reality, we need people to come out and say, hey, Let's sit down. Let's see where the middle ground is. For me, low-hanging fruit. And again, some of my colleagues have done far more research on this than I. But to me, a low-hanging fruit, for example, is universal background checks. There's obviously the loophole for between private sellers and that sort of thing. That's something that one poll showed that 93% of Republicans agree with, 70-plus percent of NRA members agree with, 97%, if I remember correctly, of Democrats agree with. Why aren't we doing that? Why are we not finding the low-hanging fruit and doing those things? And then sitting down at a table and saying, okay, what do you want? What's the next step? What can, where can we meet in the middle and do something? It may not prevent every school shooting. It may not prevent every mall shooting, but it may prevent one. It may prevent two. And if we can prevent one more child from rolling into the ER with a bullet, and a bullet hole in them, then that little step was worth it. Well, that's beautifully said. We really appreciate your time talking with us about this. Absolutely. I'm glad I could. I appreciate the invitation. And thank you for the work that you're doing and for the care that you provided in a a really difficult time to our fellow Kentuckians and um, for using your voice this way. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And honestly, I hope that, as you mentioned, your, your fellow Kentuckians, I hope that they will have the insight to reach out and they've gotten some excellent medical care from some of my colleagues. I hope that they have the insight to reach out and get the ongoing psychiatric care that, that will absolutely be necessary mm-hmm. after this. It's mm-hmm. not something to bounce back from physically. It's not something to bounce back from socially, and it's not something to bounce back from psychiatrically. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Uh, if you have time to leave support through a rating or review for this podcast or to check out our new podcast, The Nuanced Life, we would really appreciate it. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics to become a monthly supporter of the show or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. 
Find us on Twitter at PaintsuitPolitik, Facebook, and Instagram at PaintsuitPolitics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.